Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Friday, November 5th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, November 7th, 2021. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-host, Jasmine Smith. How's it going, lady? Oh, lady, sis. I'm, yeah, <laughs> just, I'm doing all right. Um, I'm kind of enjoying the fall. You know, yesterday was a pretty nice day out in the city. Okay. Uh, it's not too cold, and it's pretty sunny outside today, so I, I can't complain too much. Awesome. Yeah, it is starting to get cold for real. I had to, like, put on the heat. I'm like, I want to make some soup. I'm drinking tea. So here we go into this um, crisp season. But I like fall. I hope we actually have fall before we have winter. Like, I hope it doesn't turn winter right away. Yeah, <laughs> me me too. But I also am hoping that we actually have a real winter because it, it's been... As somebody, especially, I don't, I don't know how it was where um, you grew up, but I grew up in a place that there's a lot of snow. Mm-hmm, me too. And o- over the years, it's been very um, unsettling for me, like how often, like you get all the way in December and there's no snow or there's barely any. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping we have a normal um, snowy winter this year, and that it doesn't, you know, that it comes when it's supposed to come like a little bit later in November, early December. All right. So get your boots ready. Clean out the closet. Get your hats. (laughs) It's about to start soon, I feel. All right. Well, um, on today's, the docket for today's episode, we have a local news story about the vaccine mandate leading to a slowdown in trash pickup. And for our national news, we'll be talking about the protests surrounding the living conditions at Howard University. Emily, our co-host, comes through with our international and good news story. Um, You'll hear from her later in the episode. So let's go ahead and kick off our local news segment. Jasmine, you're up. All right. So this uh, this article was written by Jake Offenharts in The Gothamist. Uh, The title is, As Trash Piles Up on Staten Island. Residents blame de Blasio, not sanitation workers, protesting vaccine mandate. And this was from November the 2nd. Um, And to my understanding, a lot of um, these slowdown issues are still continuing to happen uh, around the city, but they're concentrated in certain areas. Like definitely my part of Brooklyn and Staten Island are some of the areas that have been dealing with this the most. Okay, now the article begins on a tree-lined block of Eltingville, Staten Island. No one has picked up the trash in over a week. But even as raccoons rummage through the growing pile of bags, Juan Cuadal, a nonprofit worker who moved to the block four years ago, feels as though he is alone in worrying about the breakdown in city services. Most of my neighbors work for the city and they're supporting the sanitation workers, says um, Cuadal. But if this continues, the situation is going to be unbearable. The heaps of uncollected trash may be the most visible sign of a small but potent protest against the city's expanded COVID-19 vaccine mandate for municipal employees. Nowhere is that escalating trash standoff more apparent and more supported than on Staten Island. Staten Island is still the only borough holding strong. Daniel Presti, a local bar owner best known for defying the city's vaccine mandate for restaurants, told a crowd gathered outside one of the borough's sanitation garages on Monday. These are the guys holding the line and blocking the trucks from getting out there. 
A few hours later, police issued Presti and three others summonses for attempting to block sanitation trucks from leaving the facility. The action capped off a day-long rally at the garage, where municipal employees, many of them proudly unvaccinated and now ineligible to work, vowed to bring city services to a halt if the mandate is not reversed. It's going to be bad in the streets, warned Wendell Rivera, a 29-year-old sanitation worker who has requested a medical exemption. The garbage is going to pile up. We already have enough manpower problems. De Blasio has dismissed such threats, pointing to the 92% compliance rate among city workers. He announced the vaccine mandate on October 20th, removing a weekly testing option and offering a $500 incentive for the jabs. 9,000 people, a small fraction of the city's workforce, were placed on unpaid leave on Monday, while another 12,000 have applied for religious or medical exemptions that could take days to weeks to review, according to the mayor. But his claim that there has been no interruption to trash pickup is contradicted by the city's own 311 data. Between October 24th and October 30th, complaints about trash increased by a factor of 10 from the previous month. Despite being the least populous borough, Staten Island leads the city in complaints for missed trash pickups, clocking more than 5,000 over the span of a week. Over the same time period, Manhattan recorded fewer than 500 complaints. The zip codes encompassing Eltingville went from a couple dozen complaints at the start of October to more than 1,200 last week. Multiple workers said that their bosses at the Department of Sanitation were focused on avoiding a trash crisis in Manhattan, knowing full well that those rank-and-file workers exert enormous power on Staten Island. These guys run this island, they really do, said Brian, a sanitation worker who asked for his last name to not be published for fear of professional consequences. They're not afraid of getting written up. They're not afraid of backlash. Since the mandate went into effect, employees said they have received substantial bonuses in exchange for helping to cover routes that have not received trash pickups. But even then, some sanitation workers said they were still intent on sending a message to the city. You leave stuff out, you leave stuff out, added Brian, who said he was vaccinated but supported the protest. I'm sure the job didn't get done to the city's satisfaction today. Despite bearing the brunt of the protest, many Staten Island residents said they would continue to support the sanitation workers. Some have placed signs outside urging sanitation workers to leave the garbage behind, according to Councilman Joe Borelli, a Republican who represents the borough. The conservative-leaning borough has long been an outlier from the rest of New York City, where vaccine mandates enjoy broad public support. Earlier this week, a protest on Staten Island made national headlines after an attendee claimed that schools and town halls would be, quote, burned to the ground if the state implements a vaccine requirement for children. While the NYPD has only seen a few dozen officers placed on unpaid leave, roughly 8,000 members of the department have applied for medical or religious exemptions, by far the most of any agency. As he enters his second week without a trash pickup, 
Cuadro, an Eltingville resident, wondered if there are limits to his neighbor's backing of the absent sanitation workers. All the garbage outside of people's homes is problematic, he said. I think they're going to start changing their mind if this continues. Um, So just to wrap up, according to AP News, one in six New York City sanitation workers are unvaccinated. Um, And this is just a little bit of background on strikes that the NYC Department of Sanitation has done in the past. Um, In 1968, sanitation workers were without a contract for six months when they rejected Mayor John Lindsay's proposal and they went on strike on February the 2nd. The garbage on the streets accumulated to over 100,000 tons and negotiations between the mayor and union leaders went poorly. Finally, eight days later, Governor Nelson Rockefeller stepped in, offering a $425 wage increase and future arbitration, which the workers agreed to and ended the strike. Um, In 1975, there was a wildcat strike of the New York City Department of Sanitation. Um, Wildcat strike meaning it was done without the approval or authorization of union leadership. Um, And that strike took place from July 2nd to July 4th in 1975 in the midst of a budget crisis. In 1981, sanitation workers went on strike after midnight on December the 1st to demand a wage increase, and they stayed on strike through December the 17th. So um, that's 16 days, and it looks like that's the longest time they were on strike. Um, And in case you did not know, being a sanitation worker is a very dangerous job. Um, This is from Civil Service Success. According to a report published in 2016 by the New York Committee for Occupational Safety and Health, sanitation workers have job fatality risks that are 10 times higher than other kinds of workers. The figure is even higher than what is considered one of the most dangerous jobs, which is mining. So yeah, that's um that's what's going on with with the garbage, particularly in Staten Island, but also in um, other parts of the city. Wow, that was very thorough. Thanks for the history on that too. I think a lot of times we hear about strikes, but never know like what um, the ending is, like what the result normally turns out to be. But yeah, um, it was definitely an issue over in my neighborhood as well. For like the last couple of weeks, it's just been. I feel like they've been kind of reckless out here. Like I felt, you know, um, you know, just like I was just more conscientious and I happen to have family in town. Like what is going on? I had explained it to them, you know, like what was happening. But I mean, I, I totally I kind of feel for them because I know a couple of people that that work sanitation. I know, especially when uh, the pandemic first hit, it was so many issues um, for protecting them. But the mandate really is changing the lives of a lot of people right now. It really is. Yeah. So do you, are you saying that you, um, like agree with the reason behind the strike or the slowdown? I mean, I'm not sure if I agree with it because I understand the reasoning for mandate. So I'm on the fence about that. I think in a job like that, where it is serving the public, um, I can understand why it's important. Um, but in the same context, you know, I feel like they didn't really have anything else that they could have done to protest and what can anyone do to protest besides lose their likelihood at this point? Um, well, I think like, and uh, what I mentioned with the other strikes previously, those are things, you know, cause I am like a pro 
um, union and light workers sticking together type of person. However, mm-hmm. um, in my experience, like working with it directly, like I don't believe that every grievance people have with a workplace issue is necessarily legitimate. So, you know, like there's definitely people who, you know, they they're wrong and they know that they're wrong, but they still are dependent on, you know, rallying people at the job around them to support them regardless. Um, And, you know, it's one thing if you're like, you know, the cost of living is going up, but you're not increasing my pay or, you know, things that have to do with safety. You know, like, you know, I think it's important to understand like how dangerous working sanitation is like a lot of yeah. them die yeah. like you know it's a lot more dangerous than being a, a cop like yeah yes yeah, so, you know like your chances of something happening to you like getting injured on the job are really high you know so it's like I could understand um not doing your job because you're protesting things like that but when it comes to this particular issue like I definitely feel like it is such a politicized thing and people are trying to make it out to be on par with other types of issues. Like, yeah, I can understand that. And they're rallying others around them as well. Like there is active rallying um, from spread from misinformation from all type of things as well. Right. Like I do, I definitely wonder like if this had been like if up or down, and black were white and it wasn't like a pandemic that took place when it did under the presidency of who it started under with the rhetoric that was around it. You know, if it were like a different infection under a different administration with, you know, not the same politicization of a disease, if any of this would be happening. You understand, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I get that. I get that. Um, Definitely. It's like, you know, when you really ask people now, I don't know, but a lot of people are afraid to really get into dialogue about how people feel about the mandate. And I think that's the wrong thing to do. Like we should voice our opinions and try to understand each other at the very least. But, you know, a lot of people don't really want to talk about the reasons that they don't want to get vaccinated. And when they do, you know, it's, it, it I don't know, some of the, some of the conversations I've had to me, I'm, it just didn't really make as much sense as they thought it did. Um, now I'm not judging anybody for their, you know, how they feel about being vaccinated, but like, what is the reason, you know, can we talk about this? I just, I just wonder about that. Like how many people are not actually having conversations, just doing it because that's what, you know, people are doing to stick together too. Yeah. I mean, I feel, um, I have spoken to people that are hesitant or, you know, and I, I, to be honest, I'm not even going to use the word hesitant anymore because I would say hesitant is the word I would use when, you know, something is just rolling out and it's brand new and very few people have it. I could understand like hesitation, but uh, I got an email recently from a school and they use the term uh, vaccine resistant. And I'm like, I think that's a lot more accurate, especially at this stage in wow. the game. It's like there are people who like they have an ideological um, their reason for not wanting the vaccine has to do with some sort of ideological and political stance that they're taking and is no longer connected with not knowing that it's safe and things like that. It's just purely a matter of you can't tell me what to do. Mm hmm. 
And, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, I wonder if this were some other thing, like what would happen? Because like with a lot of healthcare workers not getting it, people will point out, it's like in order for you to even get that job initially, you had to show that you had right. a whole host of vaccines. Exactly. To go to you school, know. to do a lot of things, you have to show your medical Right. Records. You know, this and like new. These, and these people were not doing that at that point. So the only thing that is different really is like the political climate and like the, all of these other like worldview things that are yeah. being tacked onto this issue. And this yeah. issue is being used as like the linchpin to, you know, voice that they don't like the mayor, you know what I'm saying? Or like yep. they're against the mayor or yep. they're against, you know, against following. The government. yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, so it's like, it, it, it's, it's like if, if it weren't coronavirus, it would be something else that they're like, I'm against this. I'm opposed. Right. To it. And like if it weren't the current political climate and it were the same thing with like a scary, they probably would get the shot with no hesitation because there isn't that same climate of like resisting the man telling you what to do. Like that's that's the yeah. way I see it at this point. Cause- well, I, I know that um, in a few other countries, I forgot which one, they just released the pill the COVID-19 pill that's supposed to be 85% effective or something like that. And I'm wondering if people will be more open to doing that as opposed to getting an injection. I don't know. I mean, you know, I feel like that could, I could change the tide short, you know, in some way for various reasons. Maybe yeah. I mean, yeah. Interesting. I hadn't heard of the, of the pill. Right. Uh, you muted yourself. Yeah, I was just reading that, that the pill, uh, the reason that it hasn't come out, it's only at 85%, it's the Pfizer pill, only 85%, I believe, effectiveness. Um, so they haven't really released it here yet, but there are some other countries that are trying it. Um, I mean, that's right still now. a high number. Like people exactly, forget, like the, nothing. Like the yeah. polio vaccine, I think was only like 60 or something like that. But when you had enough people taking it, like that changed a lot of people's lives. Exactly. You know, so 85 is still nothing to mess with, especially something, you know, with this pandemic going on as long as it is and as deadly as it's been and continues to be. Right. Like the U.S. Right. right now, like we lead the the world in deaths, COVID yeah. deaths. Mm-hmm. So. And a steady climbing. So interesting. Well, thank you for that story. I think it was uh, really, you know, we need to consider like the, the ins and outs of the city we live in. I think the pandemic really made us see like, you know, people are so unconscious of all the things that happen in order for you to have a, a New York city life. <laughs> it's exactly. a lot of moving parts. It's a lot of moving parts. So great story. Yeah. We back to being a, a funky city for a while. People yeah. talking about it's like it's the seventies all over again. I'm like, oh Lord Jesus, please I mean, not. There's, not there's a lip there's a little truth in that, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Well, I believe you have our first music selection of the day. Yeah. So this is a topical one. This is a track by the Stylistics that came out in 1971. So a couple years after the great NYC sanitation strike. And this is People Make the World Go Round. Uh, You're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. We'll be right back. Oh, why? Because they want more pay. 
Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we will hop right into our national news segment. So this story comes from TheChronicle.com. The title is What Led to Howard University's Longest Protests Ever? And the author is Oyen Adadoyan and Katie Hidalgo-Bellows. The longest sit-in in Howard University's history may enter a new phase on Friday when Wayne A.I. Frederick, the university's president, is slated to address the community in a virtual town hall. A key demand of the student activists who began their occupation of the center 24 days ago. Once, uh, since October 12th, more than 100 students at the historically black institution in Washington, D.C. have been occupying its Armor J. Blackburn University Center or camping nearby to compel leaders to focus on what students are calling poor on-campus housing conditions, low availability of affordable off-campus housing, and a lack of student representation in university decision-making. 
Photos of mold in the dorms, complaints of rodents infestations, and a shortage of off-campus student housing, and accusations of misappropriated tuition dollars have circulated on social media over the past three weeks, sparking outrage from supporters of the student activists. Meanwhile, the university has maintained that it is committed to keeping housing affordable for students and empowering student leaders. Administrators denied that the dormitories struggle with widespread mold problems, and officials had previously said they would meet with protesters only after they left the Blackburn building, but now Frederick is inviting them to participate in Friday's town hall. The trajectory of the occupation is unclear. As the standoff between administration and students continue, the prospect of an amicable resolution feels increasingly remote. Temperatures are dropping into the 30s overnight and the tents often offer minimal protection against the elements. But the students, fueled by cup of noodles, gifted with hand warmers and equipped by a large social media following, have resolved not to leave until their demands are met. Recent statements from Howard's leaders only seem to have angered the students more. On Tuesday evening, a tweet from Howard University's official account caused a firestorm. Quote, we are sad to report the occupation of Blackburn has led to the unintended consequence of the HU community. The tweet read, due to the cafe being closed, some Sodexo workers have been laid off. We are committed to working with our students to avoid more repercussions like this one. Some users called out the administration for blaming students for the actions of Sodexo, which is a 12.4 billion multinational corporation that provides dining staff to hundreds of other colleges. The company remains, quote, committed to providing exceptional service during these difficult times, and we hope that both parties will soon come to a mutually beneficial resolution. And that was uh, what a Sodexo representative said in an email to the Chronicle. Charles H.F. Davis III, an assistant professor at the University of Michigan and at Ann Harbor's Center of the Study of Higher Education and Post-Secondary Education, says students being responsible for the letting go of Sodexo workers would make no fiscal or material sense, but institutions often scapegoat students when they can. Elizabeth Cunningham, a Howard sophomore and a and participant in the protest said the university's insinuation that the layoffs were students' fault was a slap in the face. We're simply trying to address problems that should have been addressed decades ago, she said. And if they would simply meet our demands, we would leave so quick. We don't want to be here. We have to be. Wearing army green camouflage and Timberland boots and standing in the vestibule of Howard's Blackburn Center, Anaya Vines, a 20-year-old political science criminology double major, looked at the picture of looks like a picture of a revolutionary leader. She's the founder of the Live Movement, an organization that advocates for students at historically black colleges. She's also leading the takeover of the Blackburn Center, which administration has now shut down. More than 100 students are camped out overnight in a bunch of colorful tents. Vine said that she's skeptical about the university's messaging. They're not on our side. They're not working with us. None of, none of our demands have been met. The sit-in began in mid-October, um, the sit-in began on that mid-October Tuesday around 8 p.m. when more than 150 students took over Blackburn's building following a town hall hosted in the university's student association. The group had invited President Frederick, who did not attend because of a scheduling conflict, according to Frank Tramble, Howard's chief communication officer. I don't know what scenario where you can tell an executive what time to be somewhere, and when they tell you they can't make it, let's try for a different date, then you hold the meeting anyway, is what he said. 
The protesters have no shortage of support. Volunteers have driven from as far as Texas and U-Hauls and hopped on planes from California to assist them from providing heated blankets and air mattresses to cases upon cases of bottled water. Local activist organizations like Freedom Friday DC and Harriet's Wilded Dreams have helped too. In solidarity with the students at Howard, a dozen of students from Clark Atlanta University and Morehouse, Morris Brown and Spelman Colleges known as the Atlantic Center Atlanta University Center Consortium protested for better housing conditions on their campuses and increased federal funding for HBCUs, among other things. Uh, And that was reported in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Howard executives, of course, hold no romantic notions about the protests. They counter protesters' accusations that they're leaving students out to dry with evidence of the investments they have made in the most vulnerable students and a reminder that the cost of living challenges face students at Howard and this is typical among their peer institutions. In 2016, Howard announced a 40-year partnership with Corvius, a property management company that promised to provide additional housing for students. Uh, Tramble said the university housings about houses about 60% of its students with guaranteed housing for freshmen and sophomores. As far as housing conditions go, Tramble denied the existence of Vernon problems and said there have been 39 reports of mold this year, accounted for only a small percentage of the 2,700 rooms on campus. On Tuesday, Cynthia Evers, the vice president of student affairs, released a statement inviting students, parents, public officials, health inspectors, and more to examine its to examine residence halls in light of students' protesters about poor conditions. Cunningham, the sophomore protester, views the activist course as a better of several options. Living in tents or in the Blackburn Center is disgusting, she says, but so is living in the dorms. So that's about the conclusion of the article. Um, This is really sad that they are out there First of all, for so long, I feel like this is um, yeah unheard of, considering the fact that they can just go make repairs and try to fix the stuff. Like, what what is the holdup? I don't understand. And some of these things, like, they're not no little, like, cosmetic complaints. Like, you can really develop serious health issues exactly. when, you, mold? when you're living with mold and vermin. Like, that's not, that's a huge thing. That's a, That's like an emergency situation. And let's not forget, tuition for Howard University is not cheap, okay? Not at all. If they're housing all freshmen and sophomore students, that's a lot. Yeah, and then what happens when you're a junior and a senior? Then it's like you're on your own if you need housing? or You have to look for off-campus affordable housing. That's what they're saying. They partnered with that organization, but... Um, that organization is not holding up. It's it's right. So yeah, it is like you are kind of thrown out there. Yeah, when you're still an undergraduate. Yeah, that's unheard of. I mean, it looks like tuition and fees for uh, students in 2021 was twenty eight thousand dollars. Um, mm. and they can't get their the mold out of their apartments or get some sort of adjustment you know, to the cost of this so that they can find other options at the very least, they can try to work with them. You know what I mean? Cause when you're, when you're stuck out there and your family sent you away, like you really don't have any other choices. If you don't have a job, then you're living off of the um, food plan that came along with your housing plan. And if the center's closed, how are they eating? Yeah. And like that, that part of the country is not cheap to live in. Period. Exactly. 
you know, exactly. like there's a lot of issues with gentrification and, you know, rent is going up everywhere, like astronomically, it seems like. So, you yeah, know, and these are young people just starting out in life. They're not likely to have a whole lot saved up or anything where they could just go elsewhere. Exactly. And, um, you know, you have to think like they're coming from all parts of the country. The Howard University experience is supposed to be one of the best ones of all HBCUs. Um, they have a very distinguished alumni. A lot of well-known people went and graduated from Howard. So it's not I feel like it's not like they don't have endowment money or, you know, um, contributions from their graduates. Like I, I don't really see them having money problems this at Howard in D.C., even if they do, it's like, this is something that's essential. Exactly. Like, I could see not having money to pay for something that might be a luxury or something related to, like, a, an extracurricular activity or sports or whatever. You can't right. update things. But people living, like, in a pest-free environment that doesn't have mold, that's basic. So if you can't do that, then you don't have any business being open. So I'm really confused as to what exactly is going on. Like I know the people that are in charge, as is always the case, like they're paid handsomely. Right. You know, like if you got to do what you got to do, like take some kind of a pay cut or, you know, rally together as the people at the top so that, you know, your salary is going to making sure that all the students have safe living, living conditions yeah that's the bare minimum so i'm really not understanding like this resistance and this nastiness other than perhaps like to not appear to be giving in to protesters like i i don't believe that there isn't money to fix these things right i agree and i also feel that the situation with the sodexo workers being let go um, you know, that commentary that they said that they hope that this won't happen anymore. This is happening because the center is closed. You know, they should definitely not make the students responsible for that or make them feel that these are repercussions of their protests. I think that's a bit much. Yeah, it's very irresponsible. You know, that's really gross to try to frame it in that way. And super dis- it's very dishonest. You know, it's like what type of it makes me particularly upset because, you know, this is a historically black university. Right. You know, these are places where, and I did not go to an HBCU myself, but I feel like in a lot of people's minds, like the perception of them is that they are places that help to encourage people to stand up for themselves and to fight against systems that oppress them and to, be proud of their history and of their identity and to and form I, community as well and to form community and like when you see something is wrong like you do something about it you know exactly. and it's really a shame and a slap in the face to people who you know lost their lives or like they did a lot you know to get you know to fight for whatever it was that they had like in the face of racism classism mm-hmm. elitism all of that and then you have you know these young people that are standing in that tradition doing the same thing and they're being treated this way by people that should be leaders and encouraging them to you know stand up for their rights I just keep trying to imagine like the feeling of you know going to class and then coming back to this tent you know in the cold like because they can't stop their academics that's not gonna make it any better so you know that's going on uh parallel to this problem and it just it just seems absurd you know it really does 
And the goes- neighborhood around Howard isn't that great either. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's it's not in the best part of the city. So I can imagine why, um, you know, when I went and visited, I went on a black college tour to visit Howard before I chose a college and I didn't go to an HBCU either, but I remembered like, you know, the surrounding neighborhood wasn't the best place to be. Um, so I can imagine it being the same problem for students who may live off campus. Yeah, I have, I have been, um, to the campus. I have visited the area, I visited with my dad, um, a few years ago, not when I was looking for colleges, but just to see, um, and you know it didn't really stand out to me as far as the area not being safe but like i i believe you that you know these issues of this is a racial justice issue like even if you take howard out of it like black people disproportionately have to deal with stuff like mold exactly vermin pests landlords not taking their living conditions yeah the heat's not on you know people not taking you seriously you know even if you paid your rent your inflated rent they're not treating you the way they're supposed to treat you. So this is like the same issue happening, but just in the bubble of a college campus where, you know, at least they're getting some national attention. And I hope that the pressure pushes them to actually change this because it's, it's, this is unacceptable. Absolutely. I don't think I've ever heard of a protest like this happening at an HBCU. That doesn't mean it never happened, but um, you know, these are, these are issues that we should pay attention to because you know, if this is, if Howard has the esteem that it has, just like any other college, whether it's a PWI or not, you know, it should definitely take care of its students. This high-ass tuition, they're just trying to get their education so they can get forward in life. And I definitely think that there should be more provision, if not straight up support and fixing to the situation immediately. They shouldn't have to be dealing with this protesting outside of the university and going to class at the same time. Right. And, you know, it's 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 a shame, but it just goes to show you, like, I'm always someone that tries to remind people that representation isn't everything. Like, not everybody exactly. that looks like you is on your side. Exactly. Like, even within whatever community, marginalized community you can think of, there's hierarchies, there's different power structures, people worried about, you know, keeping their pockets fat. But, you know, if you have less than them, they don't really care or they feel like they're above you. So you can't unfortunately depend on um, just someone like I'm black, you're black, we're at a black school. Like that doesn't mean everybody is rooting for you or truly has your best interests at heart. Um, so it's a shame that they're learning this lesson at this point at what should be a you know, very fun, enjoyable time of life, but let's yeah. hope they get this resolved. Well, special shout out to the organizations of people who have been sending things and their support um, because I know it's it's, def- it's difficult to be out there starting to get cold. So they will need additional support. Um, and, you know, even the other students at other HBCUs in Atlanta kind of protesting in solidarity um, definitely got to stay connected against the fight against oppression, no matter who it is or what it is. Exactly. All right, y'all, we're going to take a breather, go into our next music break. This next song I'm kind of excited about. I found it this morning um, just because I wanted to do something different than what I had uh, previously suggested. It's called Right On Brother, and it's about Miles Davis, Robert Glasper, and it features Stevie Wonder. We'll be right back.
you can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Hey, everybody. Uh, I do have my segment ready to read for the world news for objection to the rule this uh, first, second weekend, first weekend of November. So this story comes from a New York Ta- a November 3rd New York Times article by Victor J. Blue, Thomas Gibbons Neff, and Christina Goldbaum, titled ISIS Poses a Growing Threat to New Taliban Government in Afghanistan. The Taliban takeover was supposed to bring an end to war, the new government promised. But a growing insurgency is upending security and raising alarms for the international community. The article explains, quote, In the two months since the Taliban took control of the country, the Islamic State affiliate in Afghanistan, known as Islamic State Khorasan, or ISIS-K, has stepped up attacks across the country, straining the new and untested government and raising alarm bells in the West about the potential resurgence of a group that could eventually pose an international threat. Quote, this has placed the Taliban in a precarious position. After spending 20 years fighting as an insurgency, the group finds itself wrestling with providing security and delivering on its hallmark commitment of law and order. This has proved especially challenging for the Taliban as they try to defend themselves and civilians in crowded cities against almost daily attacks with an army that was trained for rural guerrilla warfare. The surge in attacks has fueled growing unease among Western officials, with some predicting that the Islamic State, often considered a regional threat, could gain the capability to strike international targets in a matter of 6 to 12 months. And this, quote, the core concern of, uh, and this is, quote, the core concern of Western intelligence communities. There is little way to measure the Taliban's effectiveness against ISIS-K. There is no longer reliable access to intelligence as limited drone flights provide uh, piecemeal information given the distance they have to fly just to get to Afghanistan, according to U.S. officials. And the established network of informants has collapsed. The Taliban, who have refused to cooperate with the United States in countering the Islamic State, instead are fighting the war on their own terms, with tactics and strategies that look far more localized than a government campaign against a terrorist organization. Quote, but where the Taliban have changed their strategy to fight against the Islamic State, once working together with the Americans and the former government to contain the terrorist group in the East, is on the diplomatic stage. Uh, as the Taliban seek international recognition, the group has used the resurgence of the terrorist group as a bargaining chip for more financial aid, according to Qatari officials, reminding other countries that a powerful Islamic state poses a threat to them all, to them as well. Recognizing the potential threat along its shared border with Afghanistan, Pakistan is feeding some intelligence to the Taliban about the Islamic state, according to U.S. officials. The, West, the Washington Post first reported on this development. The head of Taliban intelligence in Jalalabad is a man who goes by the name Dr. Basir. Quote, encountering the Islamic State, Dr. Basir, Dr. Basir said his men had adopted methods similar to the previous government, even relying on equipment used by the former intelligence service to intercept communications and radio traffic, tools gifted by the West over the last two decades in an effort to surveil the Taliban. But he insisted that the Taliban have what the last government and Americans did not 
the broad support of the local population, which has been a boon for the type of human intelligence capable of alerting authorities of attacks and fighter locations that had always been difficult to obtain in the past. That level of trust and cooperation could wane, security analysts say, as there is increasing fear that the Taliban could use the ISIS-K threat as an excuse to carry out with impunity state-sponsored violence on certain segments of the population, such as members of the former government. Quote, in 2015, the Islamic State in Khorasan, Khorasan was officially established in Afghanistan's east by former members of the Pakistani Taliban. The group's ideology took hold partly because many villages there are inhabited by Salafi Muslims, the same branch of Sunni Islam as the Islamic State. A minority among the Taliban, who mostly follow the Hanafi school, Salafi fighters were eager to join the new terrorist group. Quote, the Taliban have made a show of openness to the Salafists, uh, accepting a pledge of allegiance from some Salafi clerks, uh, clerics earlier this month. But there is still widespread unease within their community, especially in Jalalabad. At one Salafi religious school in the city, the Taliban cracked down on the ideology by forcing the school's founder to flee. They have allowed boys to continue their Quranic studies, but have banned Salafist works from the curriculum. Quote, for Foraydun Momand, a former member of the Afghan government and a local power broker in Jalalabad, the worsening, econo- the worsening economic situation in the country is also driving the Islamic State's recruitment. In every society, if the economy is bad, people will do what they have to do to get by, Mr. Momand said. So this, I've, I found this story really, really fascinating. Um, we've talked about, I think we talked about it on the show, we may not have covered it, but it was big news recently um, when Afghanistan fell to the Taliban after, you know, 20 years of uh, U.S. intervention um, and, you know, this unending unofficial war in Afghanistan. And it's really fascinating to see a group like the Taliban, you know, um, known internationally on the international stage or in the Western stage, at least as, as a terrorist group, uh, suddenly having su- suddenly working to become accepted on the world stage as a legitimate government force and suddenly having to fight another terrorist group, um, you know, switching positions in that way is really, really fascinating. Alrighty, and here is my good news for today. Uh, this story comes from a November 2nd article by the New York Times, from the New York Times, uh, which was updated November 4th, and it's by Jim K- Tankersley, Katie Rogers, and Lisa Friedman, titled, With Methane and Forest Deals, Climate Summit Offers Hope After Gloomy Start. Agreements to reduce methane gas emissions and protect the world's forests were reached Tuesday at the UN-sponsored meeting as President Biden chided the leaders of Russia and China for not showing up. The article explains, quote, the world leaders gathered at a crucial climate summit secured, I'm sorry, quote, the world leaders gathered at a crucial climate summit secured new agreements on Tuesday to end deforestation and reduce emissions of the potent greenhouse gas methane, building momentum as the conference prepared to shift to a more grueling two weeks of negotiations on how to overt the planet's catastrophic warming. Capping off two days of speeches and meetings, President Biden on Tuesday said the United States pledged to be a partner with vulnerable countries confronting climate change, while expressing confidence that his own domestic climate agenda is on track to pass, cl- to pass Congress despite the wobbling of a key Senate Democrat this week. 
Quote, the most consequential agreements reached on Tuesday came in areas where Mr. Biden said the United States was poised to move aggressively, reducing methane emissions and protecting the world's forests. The Biden administration announced Tuesday that the Environmental Protection Agency intends to limit the methane coming from about 1 million existing oil and gas rigs across the United States as part of a larger climate-focused plan to protect tropical forests and, and a push to speed up clean technology. Soon after that announcement, administration officials said that 105 countries had signed the Global Methane Pledge, a commitment to reduce methane emissions 30% by 2030, including half of the world's top 30 methane-emitting countries, and that they expected the list to grow. Quote, the leaders of more than 100 countries also pledged on Tuesday to end deforestation by 2030, agreeing to a sweeping accord aimed at protecting some 85% of the world's forests, which are crucial to absorbing carbon dioxide and slowing the rise in global temperatures. Millions of acres of forests are being lost to global demand for soy, palm oil, timber, and cattle, most notably in Brazil, which has seen a surge of deforestation of the Amazon since President Jair Bolsonaro took office in 2019. Brazil is among the signatories of the agreement. Quote, the plan, to f the plan is focused on an effort to reduce the financial incentives to cut down forests, with 12 governments committing $12 billion and private companies pledging $7 billion to protect and restore forests. Quote, at an event unveiling the methane pledge, Mr. Biden and Ursula van der Leyen, the president of the European Commission and a partner in hosting the event, framed the agreement as one of the most effective ways countries around the world could quickly begin fighting the effects of climate change. Emissions of methane, which is produced from oil and natural gas operations, livestock, and landfills can warm the atmosphere 80 times as fast as carbon dioxide in the short term. Mr. Biden said that the United States was prepared to meet the methane goal and could probably go beyond that by 2030. Quote, there were private commitments as well. Jeff Bezos, one of the richest humans on the planet, pledged $2 billion to restore natural habitats and transform, food, and transform food systems to reduce their footprint and make them more sustainable in a warming world. Quote, yet the hardest work at the conference will begin after the top leaders have left for home. Over the next week and a half, diplomats will have to hammer out rules around international carbon markets and figure out how to deliver on a still unmet promise of more than a decade ago to deliver 100 billion annually by 2020 to help poor countries pivot away from fossil fuels and prepare for the impact of climate change. So yeah, so this is only the start. And, you know, as we've seen time and time again, words are cheap, but uh, it's, you know, I was happy to hear that something was happening and that you know, not just it devolving into, you know, chaos and anger and, you know, people just leaving without making any deals, um, especially after such a pessimistic start, um, gloomy start talking about, you know, I think leaders started off by talking about how, you know, screwed we all are if we don't do something. Um, so everyone's, you know, pay attention, get on, you know, write your congressperson. Um, so hopefully we can make some positive change happen soon uh all right thank you so much guys uh have a great weekend all right so that's it for this week's objection to the rule thank you so much for listening you can catch all of our older episodes on radiofreebrooklyn.org on the radio free brooklyn app or on spotify listen up for more independent brooklyn media gonna play you out with our final track of the day the song is called i know you know and it's by esperanza spalding 
We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Happy Sunday. like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter.